Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Man, we're so honored to be joined today by um, by an amazing, awesome uh, individual. This is uh, Kristen Kovis Dumay, and she is just going to blow your minds and knock your socks off. If you're not aware of who she is, number one, shame on you. Uh, number, uh, fix that. But I'm going to give you the the quick bio that I ripped off of her website. So if there's anything wrong, Kristen, this is this is on you. But um, <laughs> Kristen Kovis Dumay is professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. Wow! And her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She has written the for the Washington Post, NBC News, Religion News Service, Christianity Today the Daily Beast, and has been interviewed on NPR, CBS, and the BBC, among other outlets. Her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Uh, And this is actually going to be released on paperback shortly. Is that correct, Kristen? Like a couple weeks? Yes. Yep. That's so exciting. And so uh, we talked a little bit offline before the new paperback version includes an updated preface that brings this right into the 2020. Uh, election cycle, right? And all that stuff that sadly played yeah, out kind of through. like we... <laughs> yeah. 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 A lot happened in 2020, turns out. And so turns it just out, takes right? us through, you know, global pandemic, Black Lives Matter, uh, a few antics of folks like Jerry Falwell Jr. and Eric Metaxas, and then through the 2020 election. So new preface and uh, um, the the thesis is 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 holding up alarmingly well. Yeah, sadly, as we mentioned before, right? Um, we keep waiting for these folks to surprise us. And sadly, um, they just keep obliging us by being who we think they are. Exactly. So, um, it's, it's sad. So I, I, I'm, I'm listening to the audio version of your book and I'm compelled. I mean, it is just the level of detail and the research um, is, is, is evident. It's such, a, it's such a timely, needed, interesting book. So I just wanted to kind of jump off, if you would, maybe give us the, just give us the Cliff Notes version of what is this book, uh, what's it really dealing with primarily? Yeah, it's essentially a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism as they've been intertwined for the last more than half century, really, from the Cold War up through the present. And so it looks at uh, evangelical teachings, looks at evangelical popular culture in particular, and looks at how certain ideals have been um, packaged and sold as uh, biblical Christianity um, that I think you could argue, at least, uh, might go against some core biblical biblical teachings uh, that really privilege power, um, privilege the assertion of power, and define Christian masculinity in ways that champion aggression, um, using violence to uh, assert order and authority. And you can see this in the home, in the family, you can see this in churches, and you can see this in the nation. And so it really um, pulls this thread through looking at popular evangelical teachings on how to be a Christian man, how to be a Christian wife, how to raise your kids. And it connects them to what's going on in terms of American politics, in terms of American foreign policy from the Cold War through the Iraq War and really up to the present. And uh, kind of the culmination is understanding how uh, more recently evangelical support for somebody like Donald Trump should not be seen as a betrayal of evangelical values. Instead, uh, in many ways, it's a fulfillment of these values of grasping for power and asserting authority, particularly particularly white patriarchal authority. Yeah. Wow. That is a, yeah, that's a lot. And you chewed off a lot in the book. And I'm so, I'm so interested in um, that last little bit that you said when we see, you know, cause for, for me as a, I don't use the word evangelical anymore. John doesn't even use the word Christian anymore, but I, I certainly don't use the word evangelical anymore. It's too charged. It's too, you know, and even though in the best tradition of evangelicalism, I am that, Mm-hmm. Right. In the in mm-hmm. the truest sense of the word where evangelism is simply proclaiming good news. That's exactly what I feel like I'm like I do it all the time. Um, but it's become so intertwined with a certain kind of politics that I just can't say it anymore. But how that begins to unravel a little bit. You mentioned um, Richard Nixon plays a pretty interesting role in this where you have these characters that come along who who, though not very religious. Right. Nixon's a Quaker ish mm-hmm. <laughs> right but yes. a, but a certain but a certain brand of quaker that i didn't even know existed yeah um militant quakers weird yeah. um 
Yeah. Who knew there was such a, an animal, thing. right? The West yeah. Coast yeah. thing. So, but how that gives rise eventually to this sort of ultra pragmatic politician who says, listen, I don't believe any of this stuff, but for the sake of an election, I'll pander to a particular group. Right. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like I, I think that reaches its 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 climax in a character like Donald Trump, who has no interest in religion whatsoever, but certainly doesn't mind riding on that horse. Yes. Right. Would yeah. you agree with that assessment? I mean, are those kind of does one sort of piggyback off the other? Yeah, yeah, you you can kind of see the evolution of this. You could even start back with Eisenhower in the 1950s, right? You know, not not quite the 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 blatant contradiction, but certainly somebody who, uh, you know, saw that um, conservative evangelicalism could um, help him in in his goals and getting elected and in in achieving his his policy um, agenda. And uh, you know, you can certainly tra- trace that up through. Um, actually somebody like Barry Goldwater um, before Nixon, um, through Nixon, uh, Ronald Reagan, right, all the way up and and certainly manifesting in somebody like Donald Trump. Um, but again, you know, to, to avoid uh, kind of the, the idea of somehow this is hypocrisy or betrayal of values. I mean, on, on the surface, sure. Uh, but, but we have to understand that, um, you know, that kind of language sometimes suggests that there's something like a pure, unadulterated evangelicalism that exists throughout history. Right. And then sometimes it kind of runs afoul of, uh, you know, kind of political entanglements. But we can we can just extricate that pure evangelicalism. But that's not really how religion works. That's not how history works either. That, you know, the evangelicals at the time understood their faith to be expressed in ways that aligned quite closely with, in the case of Nixon, with his foreign policy, with his domestic policy, with his views on race, with his views on militarism, right? All of these things. And so we shouldn't be thinking that there's this like beautiful evangelicalism that that can easily be extricated from this. That evangelicalism was presented, it was preached, it was practiced in a way that was so thoroughly connected to these cultural values and and these political views. Wow. Yeah. And I think you're right. And I think we do labor under some delusions sometimes that, or maybe it's a naivete that says, hey, we can get back to that thing, you know. And it reminds me so often of people, you know, who sort of wax poetic about bygone days and say, well, man, you know, in the good old days, you know, yes. we this was yeah. this and the life yeah. was this and men were men and, you know, you know, sound like Archie Bunker, you know, like, <laughs> and, and then you, if you dig a little tiny bit deeper, you realize, you know, those good times weren't good for everybody. Exactly. So let's get back exactly. to the fifties when, when, when people knew their place, is that what you mm-hmm. mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, cause your, your power hadn't been challenged, yes. right? Cause your privilege hadn't even been addressed, let alone dealt with or recognized. So yeah, let's get back to those days and people knew to stay in their place and to shut up and and I just have to scream and yell, how, how, how that's not progress. How, how are we supposed to progress beyond any of this if we can't even see the roots of it in our own past? So um, what, what, what your book has done for me so far is starkly lay out like, oh my gosh, this is actually not that hard to see yes. if you're willing to look. Like exactly. if you're just willing to open your eyes and go, oh, and be honest for a second and say, holy crap, yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, history is great for that, right? History, it's just, you know, um, here's the evidence. Here's what this person said. Here's what this person did. Here's a bunch of quotes. And then here's some more quotes. And, right. and just sit with this. <laughs> yeah. Because evangelicals in particular have long controlled their own history, yeah. right? Have tended to tell their own stories, have tended to frame themselves in the best possible light. Uh, understandably so, we all do that. But evangelicals, I think in particular, right, evangelism is at the heart. So why would they want to kind of own up to some of the darker sides of the tradition, some of their own shortcomings, that's not the face you want um, to put forward. Because who's going to want to convert into your, your tradition if you do that? And so evangelicals really have controlled their message. Um, and they've done so through writing their own histories, writing their own popular histories, right, having their own media empires. And so I think one of the reasons that this book is so jarring to many evangelicals who grew up in those spaces is, I mean, in, in in the historical profession, this book is just, yeah, you know, it's affirmed. It draws on secondary literature. I'm not 
kind of reinventing the wheel here. I'm drawing on, on the work of many other historians and just putting it together in a new way. But for many white evangelicals, this is uh, like one shocking revelation after another, because although other people have known all this stuff, they have never encountered um, this. And that's something that I've that has really struck me in the past year since this book released, just how shocking it is to evangelicals who on the one hand say, oh my gosh, this is the story of my life. Like I lived this. And on the other hand, somehow never understood what they were participating in. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like... Um part of that reason is, is this media empire that they created, right? And um, so they they put out their own version of this story. And it's almost to the point where like, you're not, you're not allowed, you're not, you're not expected to reach out past their little empire. And um, I mean, that, that was another shocking part for me was just, just this whole, like how it, how that even came to be, how it was created, how they, I mean, they're, I'll give them this. They're awesome marketers. Um, they, they know how to market. Yeah. They, they know how to market a product and, uh, make you want to jump, jump in, you know, into the deep end. Um, I mean, how, how do you, how do you even begin to explain how that, how that even came to be, um, without, I mean, there was no, no one even seemed to question it. It just was it because it was kind of a slow burn. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't exactly. It was very intentional, right? You can go right, back to yeah. to, to, ni- to 1942, the the uh, National Association of Evangelicals, and you read their founding documents and what they were talking about. They were very explicit. We want to kind of reassert our influence across this country, and we're going to do throw do so through radio, um, and then you know eventually television, through Christian publishing, through having bookstores spread across the country, through networks and organizations and Christian magazines with subscribers in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, like they had these plans. And what is really remarkable is that they succeeded in yeah. a very short amount of time. Now, this is the post-war era. And so you, it was right an economic boom. There were, um, you know, the suburbs were springing up and businesses were popping up. And it was a time of general prosperity, particularly for white middle-class Americans. And so right, this was kind of the right time to be making these moves. Right. Um, but it was also um, very much motivated by, by um, you know evangelistic purposes, and so there was a lot of of kind of devout energy being put into this, but it was also commercial, right? There was also a, a lot of money to be made, and I think we have to hold those together. And one of the things I tried to do in this book is, whenever possible, just make visible um, when money is changing hands, right? right? Book sales. You sell four million copies of a book. That's a lot of money. Right. You have, um, you know, uh, fundraisers for different organizations that are pulling in millions of dollars, uh, by, you know, these, these, you know, in small donations and, and, uh, you know, Christian radio. Think about, um, uh, Christian radio, Christian TV, Christian publishing. All of these things are both to get the message out. Right. And that's really where, where they're, um, where, where the focus tends to be among evangelicals themselves. We want, you know, to spread God's word. We want to spread these teachings and it's all good and altruistic. But um, there's also the motivation of just making money. And for producers of this Christian popular culture, it is in their interest to make consumers afraid of quote unquote secular media to tell them to stay away from, you know, secular magazines. Don't get your news from Time or Newsweek. No, 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 no. You have to come to Christian news sources. Don't watch um, secular movies you know, go to the Christian film industry um, and, and and don't read secular books. We have Christian books. We have, in fact, come into this Christian bookstore, everything will be safe and good. Now, again, there's a message there that they're getting out, but there's also a lot of money and it's a wonderful way to kind of lock down your target consumer audience. Yeah. It is a, it's a, it's a, an astounding amount of money when I think about it, you know, and, um, when my wife and I were first married and we were sort of smack dab in the middle of all of this culture, the, the pressure to not participate or purchase or patronize anything other than these select groups, like you, you, you went to Lifeway bookstore, man, you didn't go to Barnes and Noble to buy that book, right? Um, we don't want to, you know, we boycott Disney, um, you know, because we had our own, you know, the, the, for me, one of the most strange metamorphoses, if you can, if, if, if it even needs that, but is, is how we've handled the news media mm-hmm. and with the rise of Fox News 
and then even more right wing, more you know, Fox. Fox's editorial stuff is a hundred percent, you know, a right wing parroting organization. They try to play, you know, responsible news organization some of that way, but but then there's you know there's other outlets that don't even pretend, yeah. right? Um, but then for a very long time, that was. It's very strange how just consuming the same diet of media can yeah. can turn your own perceptions and thoughts. And so for a long time, it was all we did was watch Fox News. All we did was, you know, shop at the Christian bookstore. And all we did was listen to Air One. And suddenly you're saturated with this constant drip, drip, drip of information yeah. um, that causes you to see the world in a weird way. One of the names you dropped is one that causes me to twitch. And it's not one of the ones you might think, but um, you dropped the uh, Eric Metaxas name and he yeah. makes me cringe. As a historian, does he bother you as much? <laughs> As he as bothers human, me just as a human being. Me. <laughs> yes. I mean, as a human being, I find him borderline repugnant. As a historian, is he is he every bit the hack I think he is? Uh, yes, yes, he is. <laughs> and, okay, <laughs> validation. Right, no, I mean, he's he's fascinating. I remember like my first uh, kind of exposure years ago where I had you know heard about his super popular Bonhoeffer um, biography. And this, uh, was, this was before I was, I was re- re- studying conservative evangelicalism, right? I had just, um, I, I was working on a book on Christian feminism, late 19th, early 20th century. So I just wasn't, wasn't really engaged in this world the way I, I would be before long. And so I picked up that book, actually an audiobook, um, just to listen to because I had heard great things. He's such a good writer, I'd heard. And I thought something totally outside of my field, right? I'm an American sure. religious historian. My outside field long ago was in modern Germany. I lived in Germany for a time. So I'm like, great, this is this will be a fun kind of um, exercise uh, audiobook for me. And I started listening to it. And yes, very well written at first, very engaging. And about a third of the way in, it probably took me that long because I was only half paying attention, I suddenly thought, wait a minute, he's turning, he's turning Bonhoeffer into a conservative American evangelical. Like I, I totally saw what he was yeah. doing. And I thought I'd actually never even finished the book at a certain point. I was like, I can't, I can't no, stomach just... this. And so, you know, he's not, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a, a powerful writer and a charismatic figure and a really bad historian, but he, uh, for a long time, he played one really well. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And that's where he's fascinating, right? He kind of can morph his identity in ways that are convincing, um, or at least have been convincing. So he was this, this Christian intel- intellectual Socrates in the city kind of thing. And he sold that really well with his pinstripe suits and all. Um, and, and then to see him kind of take this leap into to the the full on Trump support, right? That required some um, uh, some interesting challenges for him, I think, and I don't think he's entirely successfully pulled it off. Uh, but he's a fascinating figure and a very yeah. bad historian. Yeah, I, I have multiple friends who've who've decided to you know decided wisely, by the way, to uh, uh, investigate Bonhoeffer. I'm like, yes. absolutely, and they'll show yeah, up with that Bonhoeffer. book, and I want to smack it out of their hands. Like, do, just don't, please, dear God. There Read are Charles Marsh. Yeah, Charles there's Marsh. A, and there's a there's a biography written by one of Hoff, Bonhoeffer's closest friends. Yeah, um, yes. yeah. That's read read that one. I will give him props because anybody who can take Bonhoeffer and to turn him into a darling of right wing politics, that's a feat. It yeah. is like you have to you have to have worked pretty damn hard to yeah. to cram Bonhoeffer into that box and make yeah. him somehow relevant to your cause but um i don't know just you know he bothers me more than a guy like falwell you know he bothers me more than because he's masquerading as something that he's not you know what i mean there is this veneer and this facade of intellectualism and that kind of gives you the idea that that he's going to be honest in his assessments and meanwhile there's an agenda but anyway um conservatives they seem to take these people like this uh and this 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 idea comes up multiple times in your book where these people who are not really true historians, not really true uh, former Muslims, uh, let's say that one, um, and they spin these people into their their crusaders, right? Into yeah. crusaders of the faith. And even when we find out that it's all bullshit, that it's not true, they somehow spin it again. Yes. And continue to use these people that, for the most part, and from looking outside in, you're like, they're liars. They're not true. And somehow the conservative evangelicals can spin it 
in a way that they can continue to use these people, not only kind of good, but really well. How, do they, how, how in the hell do they do that? <laughs> That's actually a really great question because, you know, I grew up in, in the 80s and the 90s and certainly by the 90s, the, the, the real enemy, um, as far as I learned was kind of postmodernism, right? Mm, postmodernism right. and relativism because Christians hold to the truth and postmodernism means everything's relative. Everything's up for grabs, but we are different. We have truth. And that's not what I found when I went, went back to research, right? That there is this, um, this, us versus them mentality, which which means the ends justifies the means in any case, because the enemy is always so real, so feared. So wh- whether it's, you know, Cold War communism or secular humanism or radical Islam or whatever the, you know, the, the enemy du jour is, right, that will justify, oh, in the case of foreign policy, preemptive war, right? You strike first because you know they're going to, they're coming for you anyway, um, and you can't trust them. And so you, you have to act aggressively first. And that applies to domestic policy politics as well. And so it's this posture that develops. And um, what I will say is that um, I, I, the, the, the chapter I write on these fake ex-Muslim terrorists was, was really, I mean, fascinating and horrifying, but somewhere along the way, things clicked for me. Because back in you know 2016, with evangelical support for Trump, uh, a lot of the media and many evangelicals themselves were, were kind of saying, well, uh, you can't really blame them, right? Because evangelicals were just so afraid, you know, so afraid because the Obama administration and demographic decline and threats to their religious freedom. And they they were kind of pushed into the arms of somebody like Donald Trump, right? Their fear led to this militancy. And what I came to see was that uh, we needed to flip that script. Historically, more often than not, militancy led to fear. Um, because what I saw happening in the case of Jerry Falwell seniors, Thomas Road Baptist, Church, Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill Church, the case of these ex-Muslim terrorists that were were paraded like a, a, across the evangelical speaking circuit, including long after their evangelical sponsors like Focus on the Family and CBN, and and long after they knew that these were guys were total frauds. Right, made me realize like, wait a minute, <laughs> the fear is real. But right? among ordinary evangelicals, that fear and, and acting out of that fear is real. But the fear is not it does not emerge organically. It is manufactured. In more cases yeah. than not, it's manufactured by leaders themselves in order to sustain this militancy, in order to consolidate power for themselves, right? You make your your followers so afraid. And so what do they owe you? Their loyalty and you promise them protection. And that's what that's what Jerry Falwell Sr. was after. That's what Mark Driscoll just perfected. And once that kind of clicked into, in, into place for me, I think this whole history kind of clicked into, into place. So rather than fear prompting militancy, more often than not, it was the militancy that required the continual stoking of fear. Yeah. Yeah. It seems so, it seems so obvious to me, you know, that it's such a self-serving, right? I mean, that the, the, the if the if the profit motive th- can't be ignored, by the way, cannot ignore the profit motive, in order to keep people interested and engaged, they've got to be, they've got to continually be afraid. Yeah, um, and they need and, your donations, they need your yeah. time, they need your energy, and they need your loyalty. Yeah. So if you've got problems with them, just shut your mouth because yeah. we've yeah. got bigger worries over here. So your absolute loyalty. And then, so piggybacking off of of that sort of overused phrase, toxic masculinity, but a thing, right? That, that begins to be manufactured, um, this idea of a John Wayne mentality. Without that, there is no Mark Driscoll, I don't think. Mark Driscoll is, a, is the love child of John Wayne and whatever right-wing groups he's, he spawned. Um, and we get a Mark Driscoll who says stuff like, you know, I, I can't worship a Jesus I can beat up. Exactly. Right? And so exactly. Now, now masculinity is defined as not just strength, but strength in the advancement of your goals through violence. Yes, right. Exactly. So now, so now Jesus is, you know, he might've been meek and mild the first time around, but when he comes back, boy, is he pissed. <laughs> yes. Right. If you're Mike yeah, exactly. Bickle, if you're Mike Bickle at IHOP, another, sorry, nut job who says that literally Jesus will wade in the blood of his enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You have got to be completely divorced from any foundational truths about Jesus at that point to claim that. Right. Yeah. Um, but how does that, do you see that as, um, 
sort of an organic evolution or do you see that as more nefarious as though no no we've this has been this has been intentional all along we're pushing ourselves towards an agenda Oh yeah, nefarious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 calculated. It happens over time. There there's, you know, agency asserted by by many uh leaders uh and uh uh you know, pastors and writers over time. Uh, and in it is this kind of John Wayne mentality and and the reason I went with that for for a title or one of the reasons is because it it just kind of encapsulates what's happening here, which is um Christians um you know, self-professed Bible-believing Christians going outside of the scriptures, really, for um, their models of Christian manhood. Um, mm. What first tipped me off to this was reading John Eldridge's Wild at Heart yeah. in the early 2000s, right, where I thought, wait a minute, you know, this is, you know, these these Bible-believing evangelicals. Uh, well, you read that book, and there's not a lot of scripture in that book. And so Eldridge is looking to Hollywood heroes, uh, mythical warriors, and cowboys, and soldiers, and especially uh, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Brave Heart, right, is his model of Christian masculinity. Um, just like, you know, earlier and um, subsequently again, uh, many Christians have looked to this John Wayne uh, masculinity as the model of Christian manhood. And what's happening here, I came to see, was, um, right, these are men who are not formed by traditional Christian virtue. Uh, we can throw Donald Trump into this mix, which might be obvious as well. All right, so, so Christians looking for, um, uh, you know, kind of icons of masculinity outside of Christian tradition. And paradoxically, it's men like John Wayne um, who are um, better suited to lead Christians um, and and to to lead America um, in this moment. Again, this moment stretches through recent history across the decades because of whatever the 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 current threat is. And so, somebody like John Wayne was not constrained by traditional Christian virtue. Uh, he was not afraid to do what needed to be done to use violence to achieve order, right on screen and in some cases off screen in terms of his politics and. Um, that's that's this model that we see repeated. That what is um, most um, kind of attractive in a leader is precisely the leader who has not been shaped by, say, the Beatitudes, right. the fruit of the Spirit. That's not what this moment calls for. And so that's really the, the corrupted of faith part of the subtitle, right? Yeah. That you go outside of Christianity for your model of Christian manhood. Ultimately, you have to shape your Christianity to align with that, and you have to transform the Jesus of the Gospels into, like Mark Driscoll says, this warrior with a tattoo down his leg who's you know riding a horse, wielding a bloody sword, and charging into battle. That becomes your Jesus of the Gospels, which is an utter distortion of the historic Christian faith. Yeah, no, hundred percent. It's a yeah. I remember diving headlong into into Eldridge's book when I was you know. Um, a young evangelical and thinking, yes, right. Yes, this is great. And we had Bible studies. <laughs> we did this thing. It sounds, some of the stuff is hard to talk about because it's yeah. so absurd, right? From this vantage point, looking back, it's like, holy shit. But we had this, we had this men's group that, that, that rose up out of wild at heart. And so this guy that I was, you know, serving in a church with, um, we decided that for six weeks or eight weeks, however long it did, we would, we would meet. Uh, this was a father and son thing. So guys, bring your boys. Um, we talked about a chapter of the book and then we did something manly. Like, like we went out and shot stuff or we went out and yeah. blew stuff up or we, you know, we zip lined through the sanctuary or we, you know, we just didn't, we did manly things. We, you know, drove ATVs out on the church property. And, and, uh, I remember, you know, at some point I flipped a switch. Eldridge, that book is fine. It's whatever. Um, I didn't think it was particularly. You know, it's not particularly horrifying. It's so banal now anyway. But I just got disillusioned with the whole notion of some sort of prescribed masculinity that had to be, that had to be manifested, had to be expressed in all this physical stuff. Like men are physical, women are this. And I'm like, you make, you're creating these false divisions, this dualistic thought that just doesn't even bear out anything. It's not scriptural. I mean, there's nothing. <laughs> There's like, there's nothing. Anyway, it, yeah. it, it is wild <laughs> at heart. 
<laughs> so it's so, gosh, wait, I could talk to you for so long because there's so many tendrils of this that begin to worm their way oh, yeah. into yeah. everything, right? Yeah. So these notions of masculinity, which obviously then um, completely corrupts and distorts the way that we view women uh, mm-hmm. and their role inside the church or outside the church or just in society at large. So what are, what are the, I mean, besides the obvious, what the, the negative effects of this kind of masculinity as expressed in a guy like John Wayne and, and then, and how, how that, how that manifests itself among, among women. I mean, I mean, one of the, the um, problems here is that this, this does end up kind of separating uh, Christian virtue into masculine and feminine categories. So men are called to be courageous. Men are called to, you know, be brave and yes, uh, strong (laughs) and women, you know, they get the kindness and the gentleness and the self-control and all those things. And we've talked about how that ends up, you know, corrupting Christianity itself. Um, But then what does that look like for women who, you know, for them to be faithful is to be uh, submissive. It's also to be beautiful. All right. So we could talk about, you know, the other part of Eldridge's equation, which is uh, uh, every man has a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. Okay, right. so women, your that. role, you got to be beautiful. You have to be seductive. That's his yeah. words too. And you need to, um, you know, be rescued by a heroic man. Um, and it, it wasn't Eldridge who came up with this either, right? As, as a historian, I went back and, and saw deeply, deeply prom- problematic views of gender and sexuality permeating conservative evangelical culture, right? I read mm. sex manuals from the 1960s and 1970s, and they really are disturbing where, you know, this, this idea of men are aggressive and they're they're filled with testosterone and they're called to be leaders. And that applies in the bedroom as well. Women are called to be submissive and to um, meet all their husband's needs. Well, that applies in the bedroom as well. And it sets up this really um, toxic uh, understanding of sexuality where boys will be boys, right? I mean, ideally um, you show some restraint, but hey, you know, it's hard. Uh, We get that. So uh, it's on women to protect um, social morality, to protect yeah. morality, right? So women who are not married have to be very modest, have to never tempt um, a man who is not their husband. And women who are married have to fulfill their husband's every sexual need. And there are many. Uh, again, this is just the way God made everything. And so what we see the fruits of that um, most horrifically worked out in, in cases of abuse, where yeah. over and over again, we see uh, victim blaming, even if the victim is a young child. Um, and so, uh, you know, what did you do to seduce this man? And um, and often the, the, the wife gets blamed too, because clearly you were not meeting all of your husband's sexual needs wow. that he had to go outside of marriage. And so it sets up these ideals. Women have to be submissive. They have to be um, sexy. They have to be beautiful. They have to be enticing all of these things within the bounds of uh, heterosexual marriage. And um, and if there's ever a problem, sexual misconduct, abuse, right? It's clearly a, a woman is to blame or many women are to blame. And this sounds horrible and it is horrible. And it was shocking, honestly, to see this pattern repeated over and over again in writing and in practice. Yeah. Well, and sadly, that's the, that's, you know, in in the mainstream evangelical church, uh, everything you just said is either explicitly or implicitly said all the time, right? Um, there's all kinds of rules and either written or unwritten about how women are supposed to dress. And I find that insulting as fuck. Can I say that, John? Yeah. Because what? I'm it. a man. I can't, <laughs> I have no control over, I, I see a, you know, an attractive woman scantily clad and I've got no control. I'm just going to have to go do something. And I'm like, that's horseshit. That's absolutely yeah. so. Why? So it's it's demeaning to women. It's it's just as demeaning, well, at least slightly demeaning to men, because it assumes we have no control, and so everything is now triggered by you know somebody's you know visual acuity. It suddenly triggers my animal instincts, and I'm I'm like so offended by that. It makes me drop f bombs on a church podcast. <laughs> what the hell is going on, John? We just lost. We just lost two of our five viewers. Oh, dang we it. are so screwed, man. Uh, but I mean, doesn't it also just it, it creates this environment where the 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 you know I it seems like we're picking on a group of people, and you know what we are. Uh, yeah, the we evangelical, kind of are. The, the evangelical Western evangelical church then is required to protect these abusers. 
Yes. Oh my God. Don't get me started and, there. Uh, because aren't we, aren't we all, and I can say we, because for the first 18 years of my life, I was in this before I left, but aren't we all supposed to just forgive? Aren't we all supposed to give everybody a second chance, a third yeah. chance, a fourth chance, yeah. a fifth chance? I mean, so we create this culture that one says you need to be, as a woman, you need to be pure. You need to be pretty. You ne- better learn to cook. You better, be able to, you, be- you better be able to handle a couple slaps across the face without really complaining much, right? Um, mm-hmm. if, if not that, some da- you know a lot of verbal abuse, and you just yeah. you just need to suck it up. And then don't even. I mean, then we can go down the whole racism side of this, which I mean, every single person that they have put up in place like a John Wayne, like a Nixon, like all these, they're John Wayne, they're, they're super masculine men are fucking bigot racists. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm yeah. not getting mad. You got him fired up. Let me in here and, and let, let me see if I can. So yeah. So yeah. temper this somewhat because we're yeah, off the rails. Yeah. Calm us down yeah. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I grew up in a, you know, good, I had a good Christian upbringing too. And so I, I have very clean language except uh, in chapter titles in this book. Yeah, uh, I, did, but, I did love that, by the way. Yeah, their words, not mine. Your but, chapter titles are great. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, I mean, uh, this, uh, you know, the idea of um, forgiveness, yes, this Christian rhetoric to paper over, you know, just really unchristian or just immoral um, uh, teachings and practices is is what we're talking about here. Right. And, um, you know, so much um, has been done, um, horrible things have been done in the and then covered up yeah. repeatedly in the name of protecting the witness of the church, right? That's yeah. something I come come to in the last uh, chapter. And I talk about, you know, abuse in, uh, in particular, but but it, it's, it's true more broadly as well that, you know, I quote Rachel Denholland uh, in that last chapter, she was the uh, first witness in the Larry Nassar case um, uh, to expose uh, the abuse of, uh, you know, this this doctor in terms of USA Gymnastics and Michigan State. Yeah. And she has a very powerful victim statement. Um, uh, but she also, in that moment, came out and addressed abuse in, in evangelical circles. And she herself is a conservative evangelical woman. And, but she said, hey, evangelicals, we need to address this too. And evangelicals were much more supportive of her going up against Larry Nassar yeah, than they sure. were calling out in her own communities. In fact, she and her husband ended up having to leave their church over this. And, um, and, and she has this really powerful quote where she's, she talks about running up against this language of protecting the witness of the church, protecting the mission, right? And this is right. over and over again, like, let's hide, let's, let's hide our, are, are, you know, the, uh, the problems. Let's hide the abuses. Let's hide whatever's going on because we don't want to destroy this man's ministry or we don't want to destroy the witness of this church. And she says the gospel of, or she says, Jesus Christ does not need your protection. Yeah. Right? Jesus only asks for obedience. And what does that look like? It looks like telling the truth and doing justice. And that's it. And I think that honestly is the moral center of my book too. Yeah. Um, and you talked about, yes, um, yeah, we're saying some harsh things about a group, uh, you know, white evangelicals. In the book, I try to um, kind of break that down and, and be as as um, uh, kind of, as nuanced as I can. But yes, we are saying some harsh things about white evangelicalism as a culture and looking at these patterns. And what I will say is um, many white evangelicals have actually embraced embraced this to their credit. I have been shocked. Um, The book released uh, almost a year ago now, and white evangelicals have been its most ardent defenders, uh, consumers, right? They are buying this book. They are reading it. They are having adult Sunday school sessions on it. Pastors are reading it in their groups, Um, book clubs. it's, It's really remarkable because many white evangelicals are seeing yes, this is, this is not like a hundred percent who we are. And we are, you know, all of us can't be defined by this, but right. almost all of these evangelical or former evangelical readers have stories to tell. They sure. have bumped up against 
this in so many ways and they have experienced it and many are acknowledging that they have been complicit in this. Yeah. And so um, I'm just, I'm, I'm really, I, I want to say um, some nice words here too about evangelicals in that many, I mean, thousands of evangelical readers have actually en- uh, embraced this book with remarkable humility and in the spirit of, of owning their own complicity and working for change. And that's something I did not anticipate when I published this book. Yeah, that that's heartening. That's encouraging. Um, I, I live in um, I live in Texas, and in particular, I live in West Texas. Um, we have our own particular brand of of what all of this means, and um, it's a weird culture to be a pastor in and try to push back on a little bit and say, you know. I know this is the way you're raised. I know this is the way you think, but let's challenge that for a second. Could we just, you know, take off this mindset for a second, set it aside, and let's objectively try to look at some of this stuff. I was never more frustrated with my white evangelical brothers and sisters as I had been during the Trump years. Um, and I, I remember one of one of the, he's an easy target, so it, it almost feels too, it almost feels like whack-a-mole just to go after him. But when he was first running, I was very open in my criticism because most people were. Um, there was a handful of people who either prophetically or fortunately, however you want to say, I'm not sure if they lucked into it or if they knew, but who from the start were very much like, no, this is our guy, this is our guy. Um, there were a whole lot more who voted with their, you know, their nose pinched and um, held their nose and did it anyway. But so I, I, I had the ability to be very honest. I'm like, so I, I wrote several Facebook posts about, listen, dear evangelicals, stop being bamboozled by this guy. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't believe what you believe. He is simply pandering. And I got a lot of amens and, oh, yeah, he's terrible. He's terrible. He's terrible. And we hate him. Um, and then a, an occasional, you know, I'm talking hundreds of comments of support. And then he got elected. And those very same people were the ones who blocked and unfriended and told me to go shut up. And, you know, it was it was weird how quickly that that whole thing turned. And now instead of tolerating this guy and holding him accountable, like, hey, we've elected him. We still have to hold him accountable. Let's make sure he does what he's supposed to do. It was adulation, 100% borderline idolatry. I'm not even sure borderline. I think it's just idolatry um, that, that, that couldn't question. And I'm nervous, to be honest with you, Chris. I'm nervous about, about what that means for evangelicalism as it continues, because I don't see them having repented of any of that. That is true. I will say that, you know, in the responses I get, because I've I've heard from so many hundreds of readers and I I get letters every day, I'm well aware that, you know, this is, this is still the, minority movement, right? The oh, majority 100%, yeah. are still. And so while I've been really heartened at the humility with which many evangelicals are receiving this book, those are the ones who who are going to be reading a book with this t- subtitle, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, <laughs> right. right? So there's a there, this is a subset we're talking <laughs> right, about. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, you know, there's a lot of talk in the media right now about this evangelical reckoning, right? And, and, I, and, and, I, and I, when I'm asked by journalists, I say, yes, it is real. It is very real on a personal level, on an individual level, right? There are tens of thousands, probably way more than that. No, I'm sure there's way more, right? Uh, evangelicals who are quote unquote deconstructing right now. They're yeah. doing exactly what you're saying. You know, like, let's, let's just take, take this, this ideology, take these values and, and, and then, and let's look at the Bible and let's see where do they align and where, where are there s- some disconnects, right? That's the deconstruction that I'm seeing happening uh, in many spaces, not a deconstructing and walking away from the faith entirely. Although, you know, there is some of that, but most of what I'm seeing is this: let's let's revitalize our faith, let's realign once again, and and to see what here is cultural baggage and what is you know the, the word of God here. Um, but those are minority voices, yeah. and what I see happening time and again is you know when they speak out, so on Facebook or in their churches or in their Christian schools, things often don't go well for them, yeah. and so ultimately they end up either either deciding to go quiet again, it just wasn't worth it, um, or to just walk away, um, again, not from their faith, but somebody like Beth Moore is a great example on the national stage of try to fix from within, try to challenge and ultimately say, I guess this isn't my home anymore. Walk away from the church, from that particular church, from you know this Christian school. I know pastors who've gotten fired, pastors who've just given up in despair. And that's what I'm seeing across evangelicalism right now, this individual reckoning. But 
by and large, the institutions are holding firm and the status yeah. quo persists. Yeah, no, I, I, I see the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, this, it seems like, in, like you say, we're going back 50 years and this is just a culmination of all of this. And it, it almost feels like, unfortunately, that we were just building up to this moment for the election of this president, um, that we were, that the evangelical church was kind of prepping their flock to be able to accept this bombastic, amoral uh, asshole. Um, and then to then just drink the Kool-Aid, right? And then just, just jump in to the deep end, 100%, whatever he says is gospel truth. Um, we aren't going to question him. We, I mean, we have, we had four years of just like, this guy is lying. He's lying. We can show you with facts. And they're like, no, yeah. fake news, fake news, fake news. <laughs> everything, everything he I says is that absolutely so true. Oh my God. And we just, I mean, it, it yeah. builds off of misogyny, racism, all of that to the point where we have two major, major things happen, obviously. And like you said, you talk about this in your, in your, in your, uh, your kind of updated version of the book is you end up with COVID and you end up with the storming mm-hmm. of the Capitol, right? Um, and I think neither one of those things happened. Yeah, I, had to, I actually had to, yeah, I turned the manuscript in just before the storming of the Capitol, but that really is the, you know, the culmination here. Right. That's that's what we're still in that moment really today, right? Yeah, right? For there, sure. There's no justice, there's no reckoning there within the Republican Party or frankly within conservative right. evangelicalism. So that's yeah. that's where we are. And you're right, history is not, um, does not give us a lot of hope here. I mean, when I, for when I first started to write this book, uh, I, I started this just after Trump's election, uh, pulling some early re- research that I had done years before, um, but but it's, it was it was the fall of 2016 that this really crystallized. I thought, yes, I have to write this book and I have to write it now, um, and so I wrote it. And uh, we were it was all very rushed to get it out in plenty of time for the 2020 election. And at a certain point, when we were just about ready to kind of throw it into production, done. My editor uh, emailed me and said. Um, so Kristen, this book is really depressing. Um, and you can't leave your readers here. Like you, you just can't, you can't do this to them. And this was, you know, not a Christian publisher, not, you know, then yeah. this wasn't like a spiritual thing. This was just like, you can't do this to people. <laughs> like you gotta give, so, you gotta give, give your readers something to hold on to. And so I really thought about it because honestly, I, I was really depressed. It feels like you said this like culmination, right? Like that we're just being drawn and this is the the logical, almost feels inevitable yeah. conclusion. And as a historian, I can say, right, nothing is inevitable. You right. have to give agency. You have to leave space for paths not taken. But boy, did it feel like, of course, this is where we are. And so I wrote him and my editor and I said, you know, I'm as depressed as you are and yeah. I've got nothing. I, I really... I, I, I'd have to make something up. I don't know what to give you. And he said, okay, I respect that. And then about two days later, he writes again. He's like, Kristen, just give us something. And so, <laughs> so that's when I gave him the last the last line of the book, right? Um, what was once done might also be undone. And, and honestly, at the time, I was so embarrassed to send that. I'm like, this is so feeble. And he's like, you know what, I'll take it. Yeah. And, and we went with it, went into production and... And, but that, that sentence, there is, there is truth there, right? There is truth. And I've seen that now in, in all of these letters that I get that people who were complicit in this, people who were all in, including, you know, I've heard from evangelical leaders who, who played some pretty key roles here and who are now confronting precisely what it is that they have done, what they've contributed to. And, um, and history lets them see that. And history lets ordinary evangelicals understand that all of these moments in their life, yeah, they were in this book group. They did these wild at heart retreats. They did this, they did that. <laughs> they voted for Reagan. They, you know, like fill in the blanks. They, all these books I talk about, I, I literally have, have readers show me, send me photographs of their bookshelves that like have all these books on it, right? They tell me, they they send me letters that have paragraph by paragraph their life story as it tracks through the chapters of this book, right? Wow. So, so that's the level of of connection here that um, that they have to confront. But um, history helps them to see exactly what it was that they were participating in, and that is absolutely critical if you do want to start on undoing this, right? Yeah. Um, seeing how this came to be, this was not inevitable, right? Choices were made at various times 
times, usually by leaders to enhance their own power, right? Um, and and you can when you can see how we got to this point, you can you can say, you know what? Maybe this isn't God ordained. Maybe these gender roles are not, you know, eternal throughout all of time. Maybe they, maybe Christian orthodoxy doesn't look exactly like this. And if you can get to that space, then we can start having conversations. Then we can start moving forward and start unraveling some of this. So I think there is truth to it, even though, yes, the book is, is still pretty depressing. I don't, I don't think that's, that's an inappropriate place to be. Um, especially as we left that four-year of um, that president, anyone sane was depressed. Um, you know, I've lived through some. You know, I've lived through the Reagan era where we thought we were going to be um, nuclear bombs were going to be flying at us at any moment. Right? We all watched the day after. We we saw those movies. Right? Yeah. We knew uh, that. There was a guy on the other side of this, of this planet with his finger on the button, just waiting to annihilate us, right? And I lived in fear, and I lived in more fear the last four years. I have never lived through more fear of where this country was going than two, uh, 2016 to 2020. I was lost, I was scared, um, and I, I was shocked at how complacent the church was in all of this and how easily they backed him and yeah and sold their soul yeah and i honestly thought okay there's he's got something on him it's got to be and, <laughs> and when he's and when he's voted out they're all going to stand up and they're going to say yeah. hey now that he's gone here let me tell you the truth and not a single one really is i mean there's a couple there's a few out there who have said some small little you know pieces of what maybe was really going on but for the most part they, they see that their potential in any future politics is still riding the Trump train and they, and they, yes. and they can't leave it. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, what is that, you know, I mean, as I'm not asking you to be prophetic on this, but you were pretty prophetic on your book. So, uh, I mean, what does that, what does that lead us to for like the midterm elections and then the 2024 elections? I mean, what, what do we have yeah. to do to kind of help wake up the nation or can we? Yeah, I, I don't think much of the nation really wants to wake up to this. And that, that's the problem. Um, for me as a historian, I will say the most shocking thing about the last four years has been uh, the real and present danger to American democracy, to democratic norms and institutions. That caught me off guard. I thought that there was more resiliency there. Um, and so what I am most concerned about, well, many, many things, but um, <laughs> you know, things like voter suppression, uh, yeah. that, you know, wait just a minute. And I should know this from my research, right? Uh, particularly in terms of conservative evangelicals, there is this tendency to say, you know, America is a Christian nation. So this is who you want to be running this nation, people who who defend our version of Christian America, which is, you know, us. And so why would you want to give power to people who don't have access to God's truth? And right there, there I, I think that's one of the things that, that did surprise me also in the research um, for this book, the authoritarian tendencies that are just loud and clear within conservative evangelical teachings. Um, I, you know, growing up in, a, in a, I, I've said this before, in an interview and and there was a, a, a secular uh, reporter I was talking with and, and they said um you know by secular just not having grown up in evangelical spaces not or and they from the outside they're like really that surprised you wasn't it kind of obvious I was like no you know what from the inside I somehow grew up thinking that this Christian patriotism meant a respect for democratic norms and institutions I I thought you know I was hearing this and thinking you know, this means yay for the civil rights movement. This means good, you know, to protect voting because ultimately that is what it means to be patriotic because that's what I thought it meant to be patriotic. And so really bumping up against the, just how authoritarian these teachings of hierarchy, of authority, of who gets authority, who does not, um, were jarring for me in my research. Even so, seeing this played out on the national stage for the past four plus years, I continue to be kind of shocked by this, that things that I took for granted, you know, I'm in my 40s, I'm a U.S. historian, and I kind of thought I knew where we were at generally as a country. And I think that so many of us just have to, like, it was 
day in, day out, recalibrating like, okay, okay, wait a minute. Okay. So this, nope, the next day it just got worse. And, yeah. and that that's really what the last four years have, have felt like. And certainly January 6th. And, and again, we're still in that space. We're in that, we're still in that January 6th moment, really. Um, and, um, you know, there has not been um, any sort of reckoning or reconciliation. And so I don't know what that looks like for the midterms um, or for 2024. Um, But right now I'm not seeing any change within the Republican Party. If anything, it's becoming more radicalized. And, you know, evangelicals are a key part of that. Yeah. And they've just, you know, they've just, you know, stripped one of the few voices of reason in their party of all her power and said, you know, how dare you Exactly. Um, step outside or color outside the lines. And, um, I'm no, ch- I'm, I'm not really a big fan of Liz Cheney, but, but good on her for, right. you know, for sacrificing, knowing full well what was going to come, that she still stood her ground and, and spoke her truth. Um, right. there are so precious few of them yeah. who will. There are, um, you know, Justin Amash really, before her, same yeah. thing. Well, and, yeah. it, and it, what it started to really piss me off because it seemed like the, the occasional voice would come out and start to speak out as they were exiting. Yes. Well, that's yeah. not brave. No. No. I'm not running for re-election now. Let me tell you what I think. Or I'm not yeah. seeking another, you know, another cabinet position. So let me tell you what I think. Well, that's it. Doesn't take any courage whatsoever to, to, to you know, to criticize as you're leaving the building. I'm looking for those handful of voices who who will stand up. I, the the one thing that I thought was interesting that you just uh, one of the things that I I shouldn't say the one thing. One of the things that was interesting. Um, I've been inside of the church structure, you know, my whole life, and I'm writing a I'm writing a book about that experience right now. So, you know, watch out for people. No, I'm just kidding. Um, um, but one of the things I just wrote a couple of days ago was, you know, as I'm writing some of this, and it's even like as I'm telling you the story of the John Eldridge, you know, mm-hmm. there are things that are kind of embarrassing to say, yeah, because the 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 pattern of of submitting myself to authoritarian people who neither deserved or would respect my loyalty is so painfully obvious now, but that's how indoctrination works. Yes. You don't see it from the inside. It's hard to see from the inside. You really have to step outside that space. Um, And I feel like that's, I I feel like that's true across the board. Like whatever system of indoctrination is being used, it's effective. They do it because it's effective. Yeah. And so in order to get people or for people to see things differently, they've, man, it has to be, you know, an act of the will that says, okay, I choose to try and see this differently. And sadly, I don't see that will. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. This deference to authority uh, has been inculcated, actively inculcated f- for generations now. Yeah. And um, with with some really horrific effects. And we can see that, you know, in, in the book I trace out in, in cases of abuse, um, but just more broadly within this evangelical culture. And so one of the decisions that I made in this book, as I was writing, it just kind of, this is the way the words came out, but then it was an intentional choice to leave them uh, as they were, uh, was an absolute refusal to show deference to these evangelical authorities. And yeah. so you can tell that right from the cover of the book, right, title, subtitle, um, the the tone of the book. I thought, you know, nope, the, too often voices of protest have been stifled or really, really um, kind of softened or muzzled. Um, there's so much of this language was like, oh, come on, you know, this is my brother in Christ. And I affirm so much. And just this little thing, but you know, never, never mind, never mind. You know, this is this really treating leaders as somehow beyond reproach. And this, like, as you're saying this, you know, this was taught to you and it was taught as a virtue. Yeah, right? exactly. Showing deference to authority is how you are a faithful man, how you are a faithful Christian. But look where that has got us today, yeah. right? It was so many cases where, where evangelicals keep their mouths shut so many. I know because I'm hearing from them. I'm hearing from people who still, you know, there are people who try to tweet about this book and are are disciplined by uh, their religious authorities. There are people who don't dare to post about it on Facebook because they know they are going to be dragged, right? And and then there are people who do it anyway and pay prices, um, including losing jobs. And I just think, you know, where the Christians are supposed to be about telling truth, right? Truth is kind of at the center, center of things here. We thought so. 
but, but no, it's, it's so much pressure. I mean, I've been told so many times, like, you are so brave, Kristen, because you named names in this book, which I'm a historian. I don't know how you write history without naming names, right? This right. is just what we do. But why in this space is that seen like such a bold thing to do? Because we haven't been doing that for too long. Too many Christians have been afraid to speak the truth. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're really good at pointing out other people's mis- you know, is- issues, right? I mean, we're really good at pointing out the Nazis and how horrific they were towards the Jews, right? But, you know, God forbid we in America talk about what we did to the African-American culture, to the indigenous culture, to women, to the LGBTQ plus community. I mean, you know, God forbid we actually point the finger back at ourselves and say, hey, we, we are the issue here. Uh, we're really good at pointing the finger at someone else, saying you're the issue. But we, we, when it's when it's asked to be pointed back at us, we just have absolutely no ability to do that. And the church, unfortunately, has shown us how to not do that. And they are very, very oh, yeah, which at. is crazy, yeah. right? You know, I, I grew up in a um, conservative church in the Christian Reformed tradition, and we had a liturgy, and literally every Sunday, uh, we went through several minutes of you know confession of sins, and there was always a song that went along with confessing our sins, and then there was a silent prayer in which we privately confessed our sins, and then a communal prayer in which we confessed our sins, <laughs> and then had some assurance of forgiveness. But like that was a big part of Sunday yeah. morning every single week, acknowledging our shortcomings in, individually and collectively. Yeah. And so again, I, I'm 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 a Calvinist so I'm coming from that space, and I it's just kind of baffling that, as you say, so many evangelicals, uh, including many. Calvinists have somehow this huge problem of acknowledging uh, our shortcomings. Yeah. And uh, you know what? Yeah, we, we did do some things wrong. We continue to do things wrong. Uh, give us humility and just, you know, uh, and, and help us do better. That that now has almost become um, politicized. That oh, yeah. if, you, if you're self-critical of uh, America, if you're self-critical of kind of white privilege, white supremacy, if you're self-critical of of Christianity, any of this that that becomes is so easily demonized and politicized in in such a way that you can't even talk about these things anymore. And that really does, I think, um, it, it's a corrupting influence on on what it is to be a Christian and on faithful Christian um, uh, uh, practice and and witness. Yeah. It seems like the new virtue is not um, being willing to confess your sins, but to be in complete denial of them, yeah. you know, and that's the, you know, it, yeah, it, it's sad. It, it is sad. I, I do. Um, I applaud your efforts. Um, I think your book is a must read for, honestly, for those who would, I mean, I think the more that you viscerally react, react to the title, probably the more you should read this. Like that might be a barometer of how much yeah. you, you need this if it really, because um, I've, 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 I've been on church staffs and I, I, I finally had to plant my own church to get to a place where I could say what I wanted to without getting dragged through the mud by whatever religious authorities I might be under. And, uh, yeah, I just don't buy it anymore. Uh, even the notion of religious authority just strikes me as antithetical to the teaching of Christ anyway. So, um, but I, I love what you did with this book. I, um, I confess I haven't read all of it. I'm trying to get through it, but I want to digest it and I don't want to just blow through it to get through it. So, um, I'm, it's, I'm really, I, I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it. It's hard. <laughs> it's a tough, I don't, and I don't I mean that. that. You, I, I think you know what lot. I mean, right? I like, it's a, it's, it's a necessary read. It's a really good read. It's well-written. It's obviously well, well, well-researched. Um, the academic acumen behind it is top-notch, stellar. Um, but it's a, there are some difficult truths that need to be confronted and some difficult truths that, um, that, that need to be, wrestled with. Yeah. yeah. I, no, I hear so, that yeah. a lot. Actually, yeah. you know, some people read it all, you know, in a weekend and they say, oh, it's such a page turner. But I hear from a lot of people for whom this hits really close to home. They have to take it a chapter at a time, bite-sized pieces. They might have to set it aside for a time. And what yeah. I hear from so many people is it really helps to read this in community, Yeah, right? To have somebody um, or, or many people to kind of bounce your own experiences off of, to, to process together. And so, you know, hopefully people who, who sense that need are able to find uh, those communities yeah. to to kind of wrestle with this. Yeah, and I think I 100% agree that that would be a, a really it, that would be a really good way to to 
to deal with this book would be in community where we could say, all right, hey, let's, okay, chapter one, let's, yeah. let's wrestle with this a little bit. Let's talk about it. And let me, let me have it. <laughs> what, yeah. what made you mad? Because <laughs> yes. really yes. what has to happen is you, you have to be pissed off a little bit and then, okay, and then let's find out why. Right. Yeah. Like, why did that bother you? Oh, you know what? Exactly. It bothered me because yeah, I, I resonate with that or it sounds like me and I don't want to really. So, yeah, I think it's really good if you, uh, um, so this, this episode will actually release very close to the timing of the release of the paperback. Um, I'm assuming it's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. The audio, Everywhere. the audible version is out, yeah. obviously. Um, John and I both can't recommend it highly enough. Um, I, I recommend just get it, follow, follow Kristen on Facebook, go to her website. Um, um, just, I, I would, I would say just get a hold of all of it. Um, your voice is, is necessary and it's very, very helpful at this time. So, um, dear evangelicals, listen, please, dear God, for the sake of all that is holy, listen to the voices who are saying we can do better, that we can do, we can be more faithful to the call of Christ, um, in the way that we deal with each other. So. Um, I appreciate you so much being here. I could talk to you for another hour easily. There's so much more that we've left on the table, but um, man, I just uh, I just have really, really appreciated your willingness to come on and, and talk about this fantastic book. Oh, thank you so much. Amen. All right. All right. Well, we are signing off. Yeah. And we are, we are John and Nat, and this has not been church. So uh, <laughs> even though it feels like it kind of has been. So yeah. um, all right. We appreciate you guys. We'll catch you on the flip. All right. Peace. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.